There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. It was Sunday, April 23, 2006. Around 1 p.m., a six-year-old boy from the neighborhood of Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada, was walking over to his friend, eight-year-old Jacob's house, to see if he wanted to play. He knocked at the door eagerly, anticipating the day of fun ahead of him. He waited for a while, but nobody answered. He tried again, but still nobody answered. He began walking around the house and looking into the windows, trying to see if anyone was home. As he looked into the basement of the home, he saw what looked like two adult people laying on the floor, but it was hard to make it out. They seemed like they could be hurt, so the young boy ran home to his mother and told her what he saw. She went over to Jacob's house to take a look and saw two people laying on the floor. At 1.34 p.m., she called the police. They arrived quickly and made their way into the house. They found a shocking and horrible scene. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. And today, we want to give a disclaimer before we start, um, because the events in this episode may be disturbing, especially to sensitive listeners, while describing the details of the crime scene. So, listener, beware, and maybe skip this episode if you might be triggered by discussion of a bloody crime scene. But probably that made you just really want to hear what we have to say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully not, because that makes you as weird as us, but... (laughs) (laughs) Good one. Anyway, what are we talking about tonight, Rosie? Tonight we are going to talk about a murder, but not just any ordinary murder. This one has a lot of gory details. Yeah. It's an intense murder I've been really excited to cover. And don't worry, we're not going to share all the details, because we're not that kind of podcast, but... Let's get started. At 1.34 p.m. on April 23, 2006, a call came into the police saying that there was someone laying on the floor of the Richardson home, seeming to need medical attention, but that no one was answering the door. The first person to respond to the call was a patrol officer. Not knowing exactly what he would find in the house, he approached cautiously with a shield and his gun. When he looked in the window of the house, he saw two bodies laying down in the basement of the house on the floor. He couldn't tell if they were in medical distress or just laying there. Before entering the house, this officer called for backup. Five other police officers showed up to the scene. One of them secured the back door while the rest discussed how they would enter the locked house. They decided to use a battering ram and they knocked out the front door. But as they entered the house, they saw a lot more gruesome scenes than they were expecting. The walls had a lot of blood smeared on them. They were on the second level of a four-story split-level home. When they looked around to the lower level, they saw the two people that they had seen through the window. It was a man and a woman, and their bodies were covered in blood. So, these people were the Richardson family? The man was Mark Richardson, age 42, and the woman was his wife, Deborah, 48. 
And the police had no idea what the heck happened here. Uh, there was a screwdriver laying on the floor next to Mark's hand. And there was blood on the TV, the fireplace, and pretty much everywhere. So they thought it could have possibly been a domestic fight that became a murder-suicide. Because uh, he had a screwdriver by his hand. But uh, the theory didn't last long when they looked closer. They had both been stabbed several times. And the walls and floor told the story of a struggle that had taken place. But we'll talk more about that later. Um, after discovering these bodies, they cleared the basement and continued upstairs to the, clear the rest of the house. And as they moved through the house, they saw pictures on the walls of the family. They saw the parents, a young girl, and a younger boy. At that point, their hearts sank, knowing that they were looking for two young, recently orphaned children. They continued upstairs and entered the first bedroom on the left. There they saw another horrific scene. As they entered the room, there was blood splattered on the walls, the door, and on toys laying around the room. The young boy from the pictures was laying on the bed, soaked in blood. His throat had been cut. His name was Jacob, and he was only eight years old. Now, this was really traumatic for the officers that discovered this. Uh, they were in a quiet little town in Canada and not accustomed to seeing this kind of carnage, so it was terrifying for them. After they cleared that bedroom, they prepared themselves to also find the girl from the pictures in the same condition. They searched the rest of the house thoroughly, but they weren't able to find the girl. They thought maybe she had been out at a friend's house. Right away, they called their school resource officers to see if they knew the Richardson family and to see if they knew of any friends that she had in the area. They couldn't find anyone. This is when they realized they might be dealing with a kidnapping. And now we want to pause to share another podcast with you that we think you might enjoy if you like our show. This is Murderous Minors, Killer Kids, bringing you the frightening and truly insane tales of children with the thirst to kill. Kindergarten through 12th grade murderers. True stories thoroughly researched. Join us weekly for new tales of parents' worst nightmares on Murderous Minors, Killer Kids. What podcast brings you true stories of exceptionally smart and insanely dumb crimes every week? Dumb and busted, obviously. But Hannah, where is your one-stop shop if you want to hear about a killer nurse, a pervy arsonist, or a group of hella old dudes breaking into a vault? Dumb and busted. Allison, come on, seriously? We host the show together. Okay, last question. Where can I go if I need to hear the number one song of 1999, I Want It That Way? What? The Backstreet Boys album Millennium? How did we even get on this tangent? Oh, okay. Sorry for being the only one who's ever fallen victim to their tight harmonies and timeless songs. Anyway, please listen and subscribe to Dumb and Busted on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Crime you later! And now back to the show. The police put out an Amber Alert to find the missing girl, Jasmine Richardson. They were afraid that she could have been taken by the same person that murdered her parents and her brother. Jasmine Richardson. Also known as Jasmine Rice. 
Just kidding. <laughs> That's what I think of every time I think of the word jasmine. <laughs> yeah, Jasmine R. Jasmine was a hardworking girl. Uh, her teachers described her as diligent and a good student. And she went to Catholic girls' school and was referred to as your typical unassuming student. As the police began their investigation, they found some of Jasmine's friends and talked to them about anything that could have possibly um, be able to help them find her. And they learned that Jasmine had been dating a much older man. So this was kind of a shock. Um, but her parents had forbidden them from seeing each other, as any parents would. According to the friends, he was a gross goth dude into dark things. So he sounds like a good suspect here. He had a motive after being forbidden to see his girlfriend by these people, and he was into some dark things. So let's talk a little bit about who he was. Have you mentioned Jasmine's age yet? Jasmine is 12 years old. Okay. I just hadn't said that yet. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, two sentences away. So. <laughs> Sorry. So do you want to talk about Jeremy Stanky? <laughs> I do. Jeremy Stanky was born on January 15th, 1983. At the time he was dating Jasmine, he was a 23-year-old man, and she was only 12 years old. So if you listen to Rosie's personal story a couple of weeks ago, um, you might know that this is something Rosie can personally relate to. Now my spidey senses went off hardcore reading that part. Yeah. And we'll talk later about the documentary. But um, before we get that, get to that, um, he identified as a goth and also a self-proclaimed 300-year-old werewolf. His online... <laughs> Let's stop for a sec. Yeah. You heard it right. I don't want to gloss over that. He said he was a 300-year-old werewolf. That was his line. Yeah, so a real <laughs> serious dude. That's really weird. <laughs> his online moniker was Soul Eater, and his interests were... <laughs> Soul Eater. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know, it is fascinating. His interests were listed as scarification, blood, pain, and kinky fetishes. That's my kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. You got to look up his picture to see um, his online profile picture because he had some nice eyeliner and it looks like a bandana that he was wearing. But um, you'll see... Uh, just how attractive he was. Right. Uh, he would tell people that he liked the taste of blood, and he would wear a vial of blood around his neck to prove it. Yeah. I want to talk about Jeremy's past because I think it's pertinent to our show. Uh, we often talk about the role of abuse in creating monsters, and Jeremy was clearly not your average guy. You can tell just by looking at his picture, which we'll post on our Instagram so go look at that he was a little more messed up than uh, most people so there are some things that came up about his past that could have factored into the way he turned out uh do you want to talk about that rosie sure as jeremy was growing up his mother struggled with alcoholism she also dated some questionable men and jeremy had to be around them a lot according to his mother there were two different men that she was married to 
that had beaten Jeremy, and then another one of her boyfriends who had verbally abused him. When we hear verbal abuse, it's easy to say that it's not as bad as physical or sexual abuse, but really words can be more damaging than physical things. Manipulation and degrading words can cut deep into a child's self-esteem, especially when they're coming from a father figure. Yeah, and Jeremy didn't have a permanent father figure. Uh, These were men that his mother cycled through. Uh, Two of them she was married to, and one of them was a boyfriend. So that's three different father figures that Jeremy had that abused him. But his mother said, Jeremy's dad started using the belt on him around two, which, I mean, it's a little early, but my parents used the belt on me. (laughs) but he would sometimes pick jeremy up by the ears and carry him or drag him to his room she said so that's not normal picking a kid up by the ears that can cause serious damage Um, yeah so well abuse as a child can nurture feelings of hate and anger against the world especially if the person develops ptsd but we'll talk about that more in our next week's episode At 13, Jeremy was diagnosed with depression and hyperactivity, a strange and difficult combination. He would self-harm to ease the mental pain, and he actually had attempted to hang himself. Often, he would tell his mom that he wished he was dead, and he dropped out of school in 10th grade. So that's what we know about Jeremy's past, and I think it's important to keep it in mind as we discuss the rest of this case. But based on his interests, he seems like a dude that Uh, could kill i mean if anyone's gonna kill wouldn't it be someone like this the way the documentary point paints him out to be he really looks like he could kill. yeah well we'll rant about the documentary at the end of this part one okay okay but (laughs) um upon further investigation the police found a blog that belonged to jeremy and on april 3rd 2006 Jeremy had written a post that was full of red flags. It said, Payment. My lover's rent are totally unfair. Rents, meaning (laughs) parents, I assume. We all used to call our parents rents. I know. For a second, though, I was envisioning rent. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, They say that they really care. They don't know what's going on. They just assume. Their throats, I want to slit. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. Whew, that sounds creepy when you read it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it sounds creepy either way, but... Um, it's important to note this post was made just 20 days before the lifeless bodies of Mark, Deborah, and Jacob were discovered. So now they knew they had to find Jeremy Steinke, and it didn't take too long... The very next day, the police found Jeremy at a gas station in Saskatchewan, about an hour away from Medicine Hat, give or take, and Jasmine was with him, unharmed. She seemed to be happy and wanted to be with him. So how could a 12-year-old girl willingly run away with a man who has killed her parents? Well, there was a lot more to this 12-year-old girl than we revealed so far. Yeah, so the police, upon their investigation, found some chats between Jeremy and Jasmine that 
uh, helped them move things along. Yeah, apparently Jeremy and Jasmine were both pissed off after her parents had forbidden their love. Yeah, and most of us can relate to the feelings of forbidden love. It's so frustrating when our new feelings of romance are blooming and we meet that first person that shows interest in us, especially when they're older and have an identity that's mysterious and seems cool to us. Jasmine and Jeremy were in love. We discussed the blog post that Jeremy made about making her parents pay for this, but chat logs showed something else that led up to this. Before this post, Jasmine had sent Jeremy a message saying, I have a plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Seemingly unfazed by this strange request, Jeremy replied, Well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with the details and stuff. Nice voice. Thank you. (laughs) They went on to plan out the massacre of her parents. Yeah. Um, And the police, while they were doing their uh, investigation, they visited uh, Jasmine's school and searched her locker, and they found a disturbing uh, drawing that she had made. She drew a stick figure comic strip of a young girl filling a sprinkler system with gasoline and then two adult figures and a child figure playing in the sprinkler thinking it's water and then as they say oh no we're covered in gasoline the young girl's sticks stick figure lights the gas on fire the child's stick figure is on a swing saying ah i'm burning alive And the two adult stick figures are saying, help, help, my flesh is being burned off. While this is happening, two stick figures watch, pointing and saying, ha, you're burning alive. So. We warned you this would be disturbing. Yeah. This is not a normal 12-year-old picture. No, it is, well, I mean, it wasn't normal for me, so. It was or wasn't? No, it wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I, I mean, like, we don't want to judge anyone that's drawn pictures like this that's not a murderer, but. I was doodling guitars. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to be really cool. <laughs> but she had also drawn a similar picture where the people who were laughing were standing next to a vehicle labeled Jeremy's truck. So that kind of clued police off mm-hmm. that someone named Jeremy was involved which led them to checking out his blog as well on April 21st 2006 the night before the murders Jeremy and Jasmine watched the 1994 film Natural Born Killers multiple times the night of April 22nd 2006 Jasmine called Jeremy and told him he wanted she wanted to kill her parents because they were being mean to her This was going to be the night that they had been plotting for. And that's where we'll pick back up next week to discuss what became of Jasmine and Jeremy and some theories about how these two people could have committed such a horrible murder. Uh, The documentary had an extremely sensationalized and somewhat biased approach to this case, basically painting all goth people as horrible and evil and highlighting the shame that Jasmine was causing her family by daring to seek out her own identity. And we're not justifying any of the stuff that went on, but we hope to bring an unbiased and balanced view of this case uh, and the different perspectives we can consider when it comes to the effects of Jeremy's abuse 
and the frustration of a young girl being forced into a certain lifestyle and shamed for daring to choose a different path. And like I said, don't get too defensive until you hear part two because we just want to have a balanced approach when viewing this case. And a lot of what what I've heard is all just like, what a terrible person and how could this happen? But that's what we want to answer is how could this happen? Because people don't just do this kind of thing for no reason. So Right. Um, the documentary that we found was on YouTube. It was about 20 minutes long, I would say. Probably yeah. longer if it had commercials and it was on actual TV. But the opening line of the documentary was something about how the love of a scorned woman can destroy lives or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And it's I was like, thinking to myself, woman, she's 12 years old. How can how can she be related to a like a full-grown woman? Yeah. And so one of the things we'll be talking about next week is the basically what we've coined as statutory manipulation. Because I searched that and I couldn't find anything about it. But um, it's a real thing because Rosie's experienced it. And what do you want to say about that as a preview? Um, Well, I did think it was so unfair that she wasn't looked at as a child. The child that she was, she was only being blamed for you know, the terrible crimes that she really did cause. And I'm not trying to be soft on her in any way. But she really wasn't looked upon in the right light they were just forcing this terrible monster figure on her so um i'd like to talk more about how she's partially a victim in the way that she was um caught up in this older man who was almost twice as twice her age this love affair that she found herself in and the documentary it even said that she enjoyed having control of this older man which I was like wigging out because I'm like, how does a 12-year-old gain control of an adult? That just doesn't yeah. add up to me. Because she was literally a victim of statutory rape and they're framing her as like the puppet master of they, this 23-year-old. Right, they made the 23-year-old look like a, a dumb robot that would just do whatever she wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, and they made him just look like a bloodthirsty maniac that all he wanted to do was kill people, which... I also don't think is 100% true because, like we'll talk about next week, PTSD from abuse could have played a role in the dumb decisions he made for someone that he was in love with. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a preview for what we're going to talk about next week. There definitely was something that happened because she was, for a long time, just a normal girl. Yeah. Loved her family and hung out with them. Hard working. something changed because you don't just turn goth overnight, you know. Yeah, exactly. It was odd. But in the entire documentary I was going to talk about earlier about him, I thought it was funny because he had 666 on his forehead and he was like, holding his vial of blood. Oh, was that in the documentary yeah. reenactments? Yeah, in the reenactments. and I know. They sensationalized <laughs> they really these did. stupid reenactments so much. Like in the reenactments they're like they have like this weird shrine built and it makes them look like they're just worshiping the devil or something yeah but anyway (laughs) we know we just went down a rabbit hole but 
We're not laughing at what happened. We're just laughing at the documentary's take on it. Yeah. Next week, we're going to be a lot more focused because we have a lot to say about this. But we wanted to leave you with a cliffhanger uh, for part two because it was too much for one episode. But um, part two is going to be a lot more focused and kind of just lay things out the way we see it. Also talk about the trial and and where they are now. So if you enjoy our show, we want to know. Uh, if you use Apple Podcasts, please take a minute to leave us a review and tell us why you enjoy our show. And if you don't, we'd appreciate a tweet on Twitter, at VOVPod, or a DM on Instagram, at Podcast, just to know why you enjoy our show and if there's anything that you think we could do better. And of course, you can email us at VOVPodcast at gmail.com. And we encourage anyone who wants to share their story to email us there. Also, find our Facebook page under Voice of the Victim and join our group, Voice of the Victim Support System, to have a safe place to talk about anything and just share the love. Um, Want to take a couple minutes to talk about our Patreon page and the different levels that we have going on? Yeah, so uh, Patreon, if you don't know, is is a way that you can directly support creators of content that you love. If you'd like to support us, uh, we have different tiers of support. And we actually just were part of this awesome thing, 2018 PodCards, which is the first year ever of PodCards. Um, 40 podcasts got together and created a deck of trading cards. Yeah, they're really cool. Yeah, it's something that's never been done before. How much is in each deck again? 40 cards. 40 cards. One for each podcast. Right, okay. So, um, and on our different levels on Patreon, uh, we got $1 where you can get two of those pod cards. We got $2 where you get four of the pod cards. Five, you get 10 of the pod cards. And at the t- uh, $10 level, you get 20 and the $20 level, you get 40 So but you get more stuff than just cards when you sign up for Patreon. Yeah. So you basically get one card per $0.50 cents you give us per month. And you can uh, tell us uh, your preference for which podcast, which pod cards you want. And we'll definitely take that into account. But we're also offering uh, ad- stuff. Yeah. Glorious stuff. <laughs> For the first two levels of support, $1, uh, you get ad-free access and early access to every episode as soon as it's recorded and available. And then for the $2 level, you get ad-free access to every episode and access to our premium episodes, hopefully released monthly, which we don't have one up yet, but we're going to release one soon on a pretty popular case that we have uh, an interesting take on. And then for $5, you get all that stuff. Plus Plus a Voice of the Victim sticker and a Voice of the Victim postcard with a note from yours truly. Yeah, we'll write you a personalized thank you card because we would really appreciate your support. Uh, For $10 a month, you're going to be one of our armchair investigators. And in addition to getting all the previous rewards in a half a deck of our podcast cards, you will get a Voice of the Victim fridge magnet, a Voice of the Victim sticker, and that lovely postcard with a note from us. Yeah. And I forgot to mention, but the $5 level, we've called Watchdogs. 
So each one of our levels has a name. Yeah, there's supporters is the one dollar level. Premium is the two dollar level because you get the premium episodes. Then starting at the five dollar level, you get a really nice name, Watchdog, <laughs> and ten dollars is Armchair Investigator, and then twenty dollars, so original. Crime Fighters. <laughs> um, this one, you get the full deck of cards. You get the access to the episodes. Um, you also get a Voice of the Victim coffee mug, which we love ours. You get the magnet, the sticker, and a postcard. Yeah. These coffee mugs are awesome. <laughs> They're the size of a normal coffee mug, but they have our logo on them. And... We got our local crime fighters going by right now. And know. You know what they're saying? They're saying, go support Voice of the Victim podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Anyway, um, we thank you so much for listening to our episode this week. And next week's episode is going to be even better. Uh, this one is just kind of a preface for what's coming next week. So we hope you enjoyed this so far, and we'll talk to you next week.